the God who is over all, the God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who is wholly other, and yet the God who has come near to us in Christ, the God who invites us into his presence to come before his throne that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Father, we bring our request to you today. Specifically this morning, we want to pray for our church. Father, we pray that there would be a growing culture of hospitality that is developing within our members. Father, that we would be willing to extend ourselves, to invite people into our homes, to invite people into our lives, into the messiness and all of that which is entailed when we get together, when we invite people in. Father, may we be so confident in you that we are willing to do that. And when we invite people in, may we love them as we have been loved. Father, may we love the stranger. May we love the unworthy. May we love people who are not like us. That the world may see the love that you have given us and may know that we are your disciples. Father, we also thank you for the new members that we have the privilege to welcome into membership today. Thank you for these families. Thank you for bringing them here, and thank you for their desire uh, to join this body and to be part of what you are doing here in Rancho Cucamonga. Father, we pray that we would follow collectively the exhortation in Ephesians chapter 4, that we would speak the truth in love to one another, and that we would grow up in every way into Christ, our head, that we would embrace accountability to one another, and the responsibility that you have so lovingly given to us. We pray this for our new members as well as all of our existing members. Father, that we would reflect the body that you have designed us to be. Lord, we pray for our leadership. We pray that they would be men of purity, men of holiness, men of courage, men of great conviction. And men of confidence, not in and of themselves, but because of the character of Christ and the Holy Spirit inside of them. Father, we pray for the leaders of our homes, for the moms and the dads who are working hard every day to disciple our young people. May they be faithful. May they not be weary in well-doing as they seek to, by your grace, teach and train and disciple the next generation. And Lord, thank you for this season. We love this season. It is an opportunity, a unique opportunity to get together with family and with friends. Father, we know that many of us will be with unsaved people uh, in our lives this season. Uh, Perhaps it's family, perhaps it's friends or colleagues or neighbors. Lord, we know these are unique opportunities, and we pray that we would be faithful witnesses as we speak, as we show care and hospitality as we show love. Help us to be interested and to ask good questions and to be courageous and winsome as we speak your truth and your gospel uh, to those that we are with this season. And Father, we know that we can speak and we can love and we can live in front of other people, but we know that unless you change hearts, unless you work with sovereign power and sovereign grace, uh, nobody is going to be able to see your glory in the face of Christ. So we pray that you would do so powerfully this morning uh, as the word is preached. We pray that we would do so at the Christmas Eve service 
and then at our various gatherings this upcoming week. Father, we look to you. We so thankful. We are so thankful that we come to you and we pray with confidence because you're a good father and you give good gifts to your children and you have the power and ability and desire to answer prayer. We thank you that you do so according to your will and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll ask the ushers to come as we give our offering. The first Noel the angels did say was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay in fields where they lay keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep Noel, Noel Noel, Noel Born is the King of Israel They looked up and saw a star Shining in the east beyond them far And to the earth it gave great light And so it continued both day and night up scripture together, would you join me in another uh, word of prayer? And so Lord, this is a, a great time of year to reflect upon the miracle of the incarnation. And as we've been thinking about over the last few weeks that none of your work through life and on the cross and in the resurrection could have happened had you not come as a man as fully human. It is an amazing thing to think about this, this mystery of the incarnation. It is humbling. And our salvation rests on, upon the reality that you were, in fact, a man. And so, Lord, as we reflect on these incredible realities, I pray that you would stir in us an affection for you, that if there are any here who have, due to distraction or busyness, been in, unable to reflect on the person of Jesus Christ, that this morning would be a time to do so. 
and that you would impact us in such a way to lift our spirits and to draw us into the wonder of who you are and what you've done. So bless us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, it's that time of year. It's the Christmas season, um, and I love this time of year. It's a great time for families to be together, as you know. It's a great time for traditions, as some of you are experiencing. You're doing different things with the family. Uh, The Durso family, this time of year, is often trying to create memories and doing things that are fun that hopefully we can remember for years down the road. Uh, And one of the things we do is we try to find Christmas lights. You ever done that around this time of year? We did this a few weeks ago. I got in the car and drove around looking for the best lights we could find. We wanted to actually avoid the thoroughbred street because of the traffic. We've heard horror stories. So on another night, we were driving around looking for some place to just look, to see it, to to behold this, this beauty. Well, we found one up Hellman. I don't know if you've been up there. It was like this palace almost for our kids. It was like we came up to a a castle. Uh, And the whole thing was covered in lights. The whole thing was decorated as decked out as you could possibly be. And and as much as Ashley and I enjoy those times, uh, watching uh, the the lights and the things that they got on their front lawn and seeing all the mechanics of everything and the beautiful setup they got. As much as we like that, probably what we enjoy more is looking at our kids as they behold something that they find to be completely wonderful. It's, it's the, the, the look on your child's face of awe, wonder. This is amazing. They, they look at it, they don't understand all the electronics that are going on. They have no idea what kind of bill that, that will bring to the owner of that house come the end of the month. They're not thinking about any of that stuff. They're just lost in the wonder of something they find to be beautiful. You, you've probably heard that phrase, childlike wonder. It's a phrase that we, we toss around a lot around Christmas, the We love to see our children in wonder, in awe. We love those looks that they make when they see their presents that they asked for, the lights on the tree or the houses. These traditions we do often is with our families to, for parents at least, to see that experience on the face of our loved ones. And yet that phrase, childlike wonder, is also a little bit sad. Because doesn't it imply that it's something we grow out of? The unfortunate reality is that this sense of wonder that is so prominent in in children tends to fade away as we grow older. We know how much the bill costs. We become a little cynical. We have wounds. And scars. We've seen too much to get too excited about things. But have you ever met anyone who, like fine wine, has gotten better with age? As they've grown older, they've only increased in their wonder. 
And the way they've lived has exuded awe. They didn't grow more dull or boring with age. They've become more alive. It's like with every year that has passed, they've become increasingly amazed at life, at God, at the church, at what He's doing around us. I mean, shouldn't this be the aspiration of every one of us as Christians? That we don't become more cynical and more pessimistic, more bored, more filled with complaints. Rather, we should be increasing in our love, in our joy, in our wonder at who God is and what He's done with a sinner like me. Have you been this week? Are you a person who's marked by wonder at what God has done for you? Wonder at what Christ has accomplished in His incarnation, in His life, in His death, and in His resurrection? Are you a person who lives with a sense of humble awe at God and at life and the life He's given you? How's your week been? How's your month been? How's the season been? Has it been so filled with distractions and busyness that the church thing and the Christian thing has kind of been relegated to this external obligation that you have to do? You're so busy with all the other things, there's no time for wonder. There's no time for meditation and reflection. You just kind of move from one thing to the next. Religion kind of becomes the add-on. It is more formal than it is from the heart. I worry that that's actually happening to all of us. That we're always in danger of the drift. You know the drift. Life happens. Busyness happens. Things are coming up all around you and your tension is divided every day, every week. You're trying to put out fires. You're trying to fix relationships. You're trying to get shopping done. You're trying to get food on the table. And you're busy and you're distracted and wonder. You don't have time for that. To sit and think about these amazing things. Well, you're too busy for that. And so I hope that this morning... Uh, we are able to reflect on something that maybe in the busyness and distraction of the season, you haven't been able to think much about. And what I want to think about is this. The living, resurrected, glorified, reigning Jesus Christ, who has said and declared Himself to be our great high priest. Ironically, it can be very hard to think of Christ during Christmas season. Isn't that sad? Is that the case in your own family's life? Or your own? Well, let's think about Jesus. I'm not going to mainly focus on systematics and doctrine, although those things are great and necessary. I want to think about the living, resurrected Jesus Christ who right now is alive. Ruling, reigning, overseeing His church, the person, the living person. One pastor has said this, that Christianity is all centered in a person. Conversion is not a mere change of human opinion. It is a devotion of a heart to a person. 
A converted man is not just a man who changes his views concerning facts or theories or doctrines, but he is a man whose heart has become devoted to a living Christ. He is altogether lovely. All your religion, if it's worth anything, will just be centered on a living, personal Jesus. All your doctrines will come from Him. Your motives will be found in Him. Your joys are in Him. Your acceptance in Him. Your completeness in Him. How are you at thinking about Jesus as the living, actual person? How are you doing it this season to reflect on the person of Jesus Christ? I want to talk about Him this morning. I want to give us five mind-boggling truths that will fuel the wonder for, that we should have for Jesus Christ. We want to be people who live in a sense of wonder, right? We want to be people who are in awe of who He is. We want to be those kind of people who grow into an increasing love of God. And I think we do that not by uh, engaging in external dead religion, but by our hearts being captured by the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this first truth here. By the way, we're going to be in Hebrews a lot. So you could make your way to Hebrews. We're going to be bouncing around in Hebrews. You could start in chapter 2. We'll get there in a second. I'm going to start by making this first point. Jesus, here's our first point. Jesus right now is an incarnate man. Maybe we forget this point. Jesus right now is an incarnate man. We think of the incarnation around Christmas time and we think about a baby lying in a manger, and that's appropriate. We're celebrating the birth of Christ. And we often, though, leave it there. We forget that Jesus was a man, but that he grew up, he stayed a man, he died a man, he rose again as a man. He lives right now as a man. The incarnation was a miracle. It was a miracle not of subtraction of him giving anything up. It was a miracle of addition. He added a human nature to himself. He had two natures, fully God as the eternal Son of God and fully man as he engaged in the work of redemption, he had to take upon himself a full human nature. He was a man, all the way down, head to toe, inside and out. He was a man who experienced normal human things. He was a man who got hungry. He was a man who got thirsty. He was a man who grew up, we read about. He was a man who could experience pain. He could experience sorrow. He could get sad. He was a man who ate and drank, who laughed and cried. He sometimes spent time with people in crowds. He sometimes was alone. He was human. We understand that, right? We also believe that he rose from the dead as a man. We are not any kind of liberal church or liberal theologian that believes that the resurrection was a mere spiritual thing. It didn't actually happen. It wasn't a body that rose from the dead. We aren't those kind of people who believe that the resurrection is merely symbolic. It's a metaphor. It didn't actually happen. We, we don't believe that. We don't believe that it was some spirit that rose from the dead. We believe that Jesus actually, in His incarnate but glorified body, rose from the dead as a man. 
He revealed Himself. They touched His hands. They ate with Him. Remember that? Jesus ate a meal after He rose from the dead. He showed doubting Thomas His scars. He's a man. He was resurrected a man. In Acts chapter 1, he's staying and he's teaching his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection as a man. The, he ascends into heaven. The angel stands by and says to the apostles who are looking up into heaven, wondering what happened to Jesus. The angel says, this Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He rose as a man, he ascended as a man, he'll return as a man. And if you read Revelation chapter 19, when he returns, he's coming as a man to return to judge the nations. He's a man. The great theologian Johnny Cash understood this when he wrote his song, When the Man Comes Around. He became man. You say, what's the big deal about this? Here's, here's what's going on. The incarnation was not some 33-year parlor trick where he looked like a man, acted like a man, but wasn't actually a man. The incarnation, what happened in the birth of Christ was something that eternally altered Jesus' state before humanity. He gave himself, brought upon himself, added to himself a human nature that he will for all time have. He currently has a human nature as the incarnate Son of God. When we talk about the Word becoming flesh, or sometimes we use the language, the Lord put on flesh. And I don't want to totally quibble here, but I don't know if that's the best language because it could communicate that it's just something he puts on, he takes off, he puts on, he puts off like some sort of jacket. The incarnation is an eternal event where Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, became man for all time. The Son of God became the Son of David, the Son of Mary, Joseph the carpenter's son, Jesus of Nazareth. So when Paul is encouraging Timothy and telling him to pray in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he's referring to Jesus as the one mediator. He says, he, what's he calling him? Do you remember? The man, Jesus Christ. He's a man today. He's incarnate. And he will forever be incarnate. Say, so what's the point of all this? This leads us to our second really important point. Uh, the writer of Hebrews builds off the incarnation and makes it very practical to our lives. Here's our second point. Jesus, right now, understands your temptation and your weakness. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Because Jesus became a man, He is able to understand by experience the weakness and frailty of humanity. Look at chapter 2, verse 17 in Hebrews. Therefore, it says, He, that's Jesus, had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to save or to help those who are being tempted. Do you see the logic here? It's right there in the text. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? 
So that, you see the so that there? Why did he have to be made like his brothers? Why did he have to become incarnate? Why did he have to become a man? Well, the reason is, is so that he could become a faithful high priest in the service of God, so that he could make the right propitiation, that is, a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. He really became a man in, in the full sense of the word. He was not some Superman Clark Kent thing where he's really acting human, but he's actually not fully human. It's all disguise. It's, it's not that. He really had to be made like his brothers, as it says here, in every respect. Because that enables him to be a faithful high priest. Look at chapter 4 of Hebrews. This is an amazing passage, verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have that kind of high priest who can't understand our weakness. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see this? He was a man. He experienced weakness. He experienced temptation. He is able to sympathize with those who are weak, with those who experience temptation. Jesus has not only heard about your struggles. Jesus has not only heard about your weaknesses. Jesus knows them. Why? Because He has experienced real weakness and real temptation. Jesus didn't have a sin nature. Let's keep this in mind. Some of our sin... Uh, nature causes us to be tempted in certain ways. Well, Jesus didn't have those temptations. Jesus had a perfect nature. He was a perfect man. He wasn't born with a sin nature, but he was born in the frailty of human flesh. And so he is able to experience external temptation. And so he understands whatever kind of situation you've been through, he is able to sympathize. Look at that word sympathize in verse 15. Yeah, see that there? He's a high priest who's able to sympathize. He's not unable. He's not a great high priest who's unable to sympathize. That means he does sympathize. In Greek, this word is sum patheo. Sum has the idea, it's a compound word. Sum has the idea of togetherness. And then patheo, pathos. It's deep feeling. It's a depth of, of emotion really is the word is being conveyed here. And what is being said by this word sympathy is that Jesus, together with us, has a pathos, a depth of feeling. He feels the things we feel. He is so relationally connected with His people, our joys become His joys, our sorrows, His sorrows. He shares a common life with us. This is what it means to be sympathetic. If you've had a, a friend that you know so well and you've shared life together and you've gone through ups and you've gone through downs, maybe a family member, a spouse, you know what sympathy is like. You know what it's like to hurt when someone else is hurting, to grieve when they're grieving. You know what it's like to have their joy impact your own joy? This is describing Jesus. Right now, because He was incarnate, because He experienced weakness and even was tempted, He is uniquely prepared to be sympathetic with you, to understand you, 
This is one of the things as church members, we're trying to create a culture of here at Grace Rancho, that, that we are a sympathetic people. We, we actually are so relationally connected with one another that we bear one another's burdens, that we see people suffering and we don't run the opposite direction, that we enter into their suffering, we're even willing to bear some of their suffering so as to ease their burdens. We're going to have some church members up front here after the service and welcome them in. And one of the affirmations that we'll read, and it's one of the affirmations that every church member here has made, it goes like this. Let me read it to you. We affirm our commitment to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and with tenderness and sympathy bear the burdens and sorrows of those who weep. You know why we want to do this? Because our Savior did this. He's the perfect, sympathetic friend. He's perfect in the way He is tender in understanding toward those who are beset with weakness. And we as His people say, I want to be like that. And we commit to live like that here. Not to say, I don't understand your suffering. We don't want to be people who stand aloof When others are weak, we have sympathy. We take that burden and we put it on our own back. We enter into their lives and we want to care. And we, friends, will do that very imperfectly. We will not do it like Jesus. Because Jesus will do it perfectly for us. This is what the incarnation reminds us of. Because he was man, he could be weak. And he could suffer. And he could be tempted. Jesus is not an apathetic high priest. You know what apathy means, right? It's the opposite of sympathy. It means I don't feel anything you're feeling. It means you suffer, I don't understand your suffering. Your pain affects me in no way. That's apathy. I don't really care what kind of things you're going through. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not an unfeeling, uncaring, aloof high priest. You guys know the shortest verse in the Bible? It's something worth meditating on. You could have it memorized in the next five minutes here. Jesus wept. What a profound statement about the eternal Son of God. When He saw the pain of death, when He saw that tomb and His friends grieving, He wept. I think there might be sufferers in this room. People who feel their weakness with a depth. And you need to be reminded this morning, Jesus weeps. Jesus wept. Your great high priest is not unfeeling or unconcerned. Do you think think what Paul told us to do, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice, you think Jesus doesn't do that too? Do you think Jesus is excluding himself from what he has commanded us to do? No, Jesus is the perfect sympathetic high priest. He engages such with us and is so deeply related to us in love that our sorrows are his. He is sympathetic. He cares. He knows. Have you ever wept over your sin? Have you ever wept over your weakness? Have you ever been so afraid and so weak and so anxious? Your great high priest, Jesus Christ, 
understands. He sympathizes. He doesn't stand back and go, really? I thought you were better than that. He knows that you're beset with weakness. And he sympathizes with you. I've been kind of racing through over the last couple weeks the Chronicles of Narnia again. And just this last week, I was struck by a passage in the magician's nephew. There's a little boy named Diggory. His mother is dying. He wants more than anything that he can heal his mother or see his mother well again. And he comes up to the great lion Aslan. Aslan is the Christ figure in these stories. And he comes up and he's begging him for something that he could bring to his mother, that he could see her be well again. The scene goes like this. He comes up, he says, please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? The narrator, C.S. Lewis, goes to describe up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and huge claws on them. Now in his despair, he looked up at the face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. There were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt that the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was. Jesus is no stoic to your pain. Jesus sympathizes with weakness. You have never grieved alone. And when you look up to the face of Jesus, you don't see a stone flint face who cares not about your problems. You see a sympathetic caring, loving, tender high priest who knows. He knows what you're going through and he understands your weakness and he understands your pain and he has entered in. The incarnation is proof of his willingness to come close and near and share our burdens and sorrows. What a Savior. What a high priest. He became forever a man, not only to experience humanity in order to become our high priest, but but now let's move on to what else he came to do. He came to conquer death and redeem humanity. Here's our third point. Jesus right now has finished offering the final sacrifice for sin. Jesus right now has finished offering the final sacrifice for sin. For sin. Let's, let's go back in time for a minute to Israel. We did this a few weeks ago as we thought about Jesus being our substitute. But I want to remind you that life in Israel would have been a very bloody place to live. This was a place where there are sacrifices going on a lot. The wages of sin is death. And so in Israel, God had ordained to teach his people that amazing reality that sin equals death. He had instituted into the very life of Israel death to be happening all the time. All bulls are being killed, lambs are being killed, goats are being killed over and over every year. These animals being killed to represent the sins of the people of Israel being paid for. You couldn't go a day in Israel without seeing something bloody somewhere. Now, we have a tendency to minimize sin. But when, if you're an Israelite, 
you live life in this, this, this land and in these laws that God has given you, where you are commanded to be killing animals, sprinkling blood on your clothes. You're literally walking around with blood on your hands at times. It has a way of reminding people that sin matters and sin leads to death and sin is destructive. That's what the people in Israelite would have been taught by the constant sacrifices that Israel had to make. All your senses. You would smell the sacrifices. You would see the killed animals. It was all around you all the time. And, and a couple weeks ago, we looked at what happened on the Day of Atonement. You remember the two goats? One goat, the sins of the people are confessed to, and, and that goat is banished to the wilderness. The other goat, the sins are confessed to, and that goat is killed. Uh, the, the goats represent what God will do with the people of Israel. He will pay for the people of Israel with a blood sacrifice. He will banish their sins far away. You know what was true about these things. They all pointed they all pointed to what God would do, but they didn't actually accomplish anything in relation to the sins of the people of Israel. That's why they had to keep going every year. There's no final and complete sacrifice. That's why every year the Day of Atonement will come around, you get out the goats, you kill, the, you kill them. You kill the bull. The sacrifices are all happening all the time. These animals are dying because they were never enough to actually finally deal with sin. Look at Hebrews Chapter 9 now, verse 9. He's talking about this old system. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are, are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They could point the people to recognize their great sin and need of grace, but they couldn't do anything to actually cleanse the conscience. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So these people would be reminded of their sin, but they didn't have anything to actually remove their sin. It couldn't take away sin. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. It wasn't that it was a broken system. The system was doing exactly what God intended it to do. The bulls could not take away sin. The goats could not take away sin. But they were reminding people of their need for something to actually remove their sin. To cleanse them. I mean, I bet that the people in Israel would have longed for some sort of sacrifice. I mean, wouldn't you, if you're in Israel, man, I wish I could just give one sacrifice that would be a sacrifice for all time. Get this done once, never have to do it again. I wish there's some sort of sacrifice that would work. It would be complete. It could cleanse all our sins for all time. You know who's that sacrifice, right? See, Jesus comes to give the perfect sacrifice, but not merely to give the perfect sacrifice, but to be the perfect sacrifice. Go back to chapter 9, verse 12. He, that's Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus 
seeing His people in their sin, unable to cleanse themselves, unable to wash it away, repeatedly offering these sacrifices that do not cleanse the conscience, He enters creation. He becomes the high priest who makes the perfect sacrifice. But what is the perfect sacrifice? It is Himself. He he created this world. He spoke it into existence. He upholds it by the word of His power. He sees the problem of sin. He enters in and He offers Himself to be the payment for that sin. Watch this though. It gets better. Chapter 10. You see verse 11 and 12. We looked at 11 already, but I want to show you what goes on. Every priest, it says, stands daily at His service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They, they were always doing these things because they were never finally and ultimately effective. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time, all time, a, a single sacrifice once for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until the enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. Verse 14, For by a single sacrifice He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love, I love the past tenseness of this passage. He sat down. He has perfected those who are being sanctified. It is a complete work. Um, this is the, the, the sit-down, stand-up analogy. I want to just explain that. The, the priests were always working. Their job, in a sense, was never done. They're always offering sacrifices. They're, that's why they're, they're daily, it says, verse 11, standing daily at His service. If I come home from a work day and, and Ashley's up and about, which is typically the case, uh, that means the work's not done, right? You got four little ones at home. There's tons of work to be done. There's laundry. There's dishes. She's vacuuming. She's cleaning. She's doing it all. And if I come home and she's sitting down on the couch, a miracle has happened. Something, <laughs> I don't know what happened. Uh, but most of the time, she's up standing up. She's working. If she's sitting down, what does that mean? The work's done. <laughs> There's nothing left to do. Everything has been done. It says here, Jesus comes, and unlike those priests who are always standing daily at a service, always offering these sacrifices, because nothing was ever actually taking away their sin, Jesus makes one sacrifice of Himself. He goes to heaven, ascending at the right hand of the majesty on high, and He does what? He sits down. You know what that means? It's finished. It's done. It's over. Redemption is accomplished. He has finished the work. The payment for sin has been made. He has conquered death. This is good news for any of you who are weary trying to justify yourselves or thinking that you can do enough to make yourself a little more presentable to God. The Bible's saying here, it's done. Sacrifice? To pay for all the sins of His people in one offering of that sacrifice is done. Finished. It's complete. He sits down. It's done. It's over. He perfects by this one sacrifice for all time those who are being sanctified. This is good news. This is saying that the, the, the payment for your sin, Christian, has been paid for in full. This means for you, unbeliever, you need only come to Christ 
And right at the moment you come to Him, that blood payment is on your account and all your sins have been paid for. The final complete sacrifice has paid for your sin and you are completely and totally and utterly forgiven. There is literally nothing left to do for salvation except to take it because it's a free gift offered to anyone who has the faith to believe. So we don't justify ourselves. We don't work around the clock standing daily at the service of God trying to do something to impress Him like those old priests that could never do enough. We're not trying to do enough religion. We're not trying to do enough ritual. We're not trying to show up to church enough and do enough spiritual things so that God will finally love us so that our sins can finally be expunged. It's not the way God works. The great high priest has offered the single sacrifice and that single sacrifice has eternally sanctified everyone who trusts Him. It will last for all time. You in Christ will for all time be totally pure. Here's the fourth thing Jesus is right now. Right now, Jesus grants full access to the throne room of heaven. See, here it is. The Son of God became a man. And being God, He's able to offer an infinite sacrifice that could cover all the sins of His people. All the sins against an infinite God. And after He offers that sacrifice, He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He sits down at the right hand of the Father in the very presence of God. And now, go back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. It says this, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Where is he talking about? He's talking about the inner place behind the curtain, the very presence of God, the very access to the, the intimate relationship with a holy God. Jesus goes there. But it says this, He has gone, listen, as a forerunner on our behalf. He's gone there for us. He's gone there as our representative. Having become, it says, as a great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm going to go ahead and trust you've already got Melchizedek figured out. What I want to point out here is that he's gone into the very presence of God on our behalf. That we may one day with him go happily, boldly into the presence of God and that even this very moment we have access to the throne of grace through Him. Friends, there's a sense in which we in Christ are already right there at the presence of the Father. Already. He's already ascended. We in Him are right there in the presence of God. We don't need to work to get that presence. We don't have to go through some emotional experience to try to get in the presence of God. The presence of God is not some experience. It's an objective reality for all people in Christ. We're already there. We don't have any more kind of things to try to do to get to the presence of God. In Christ, He has gone there as our forerunner. And in time, as God brings us to glory, we will experience that in full. We will see His face. Hebrews 9. Turn over there. We're jumping all over the place. Try to follow along. Verse 24. Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but... 
into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, like that one sin or that one death on the cross wasn't enough, so he's got to die again, he's got to die again, he never comes down off that cross. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't offer himself repeatedly, as it seems some believe, but what he does as the high priest, it says, enters the holy place every year. This is what the high priest does with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. That's, that's not what Jesus does, suffering again and again and again, offering self again and again and again. He offers himself once. He goes back to heaven, ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's appearing there as our great high priest on our behalf. Let's recap. Jesus, eternal Son of God, becomes truly a man, truly able to sympathize with those who are weak, sympathetic to those who are tempted. And because He understands our weakness, because He in His great love has offered Himself to pay for our sin, and because He rose from the dead, He right now says, the doors to heaven are wide open. I'm, I'm gone to heaven on your behalf. Now you can come and follow right in my footsteps. You're already there. Now come, come, come. I want to ask, what hinders you from coming to God? Especially those of you who maybe are here because someone brought you along or it's the holidays and so you figured you'd go to church. Do you think that Maybe Jesus wouldn't understand you. Well, we've seen here that the incarnation is proof that he himself was beset with weakness and he himself was tempted, that, that he does understand you and he is able to sympathize with you. You think that your sins are too great? You've done too much? Your failure has created a pile of sins so high that you don't think God would ever want to do anything to cleanse you of that filth? No. We're seeing here that this is the eternal Son of God who sheds His blood to accomplish an eternal redemption. You think that you go, I don't deserve God as my Father. I don't deserve to even come to Him. Well, you're right about that one. But God, in His amazing love, has already banished Jesus and his, your sin has been put on Him and that you can come now to the Father and He welcomes you. Not because you deserve it, but because He is a God of love. A God who pursues those who don't deserve His salvation. You say, well, God doesn't like me. He has no affection for me. He doesn't want me. Well, listen, right now, God, through His Word, invites you to Him. Mark read the passage this morning where God is crying out, come, come. Those who don't have anything, those who don't have any money, those who are poor, those who are completely bankrupt, come. Why? Because it's all been done already in Christ. And God has swung open the gates. And anyone can enter through Jesus Christ. He is the door. 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And right now, anyone who comes to Christ can be totally, completely welcome to the throne room of heaven. I wonder if some of us lose that sense of wonder of how how much access we actually have to come to God. I think some of us still are in this mindset where we sin and suddenly God doesn't want to hear from us anymore. We're not qualified for that close relationship anymore. We have a sense of guilt that we're wearing on us, this shame maybe that we have, maybe even skeletons in our closet and we're going, no, no, I can't come to God. He's ashamed of me. I can't come to God. I, I, I know that He wants nothing to do with me. I want you to picture this with me real quick. Imagine there's a God in this big room. And he's got this big giant door and you're on the outside of that door. And that big door is just locked. You might be really afraid to go knock on that door to try to let yourself in. You wouldn't want to bug him if you're afraid. Well, imagine maybe the door's not locked and you could open it, but it's still closed. Maybe you have a little more boldness to go in, but still, you don't want to interrupt them if the door's closed. Well, maybe that door's just cracked a little bit. and Maybe you've got enough courage, you can, you can sneak up and you can peek in and you could see what God's doing over there. Some of us are approaching God like that. Uh, he shut the door on me for now. Uh, yeah, it's open. I see the door's open, but I don't think He really wants me in. It's, it's clear that all I'm allowed to do is peek. I can maybe see something in there. I can maybe, but certainly I can't have a relationship with God. You know what this, these passages are, are showing us about Jesus? about who God is and this salvation He's doing through His great high priest. This is what has happened. Jesus has come to enemy territory. He has come to the world filled with sinners who don't love God. He has, in our analogy here, He has opened up the door. He has, no, He's not opened up the door. He's busted off the doors, off the walls. The hinges are no longer there. Jesus has come out into the hallways of this great house and He is yelling, come, come in to the Father. Come in through Me. Anyone who comes. The door's not closed. The door's not even slightly closed. It's certainly not locked. Come. He invites all to come through Him. He invites everyone. We can go right into the throne room of God. Think about what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Jesus, our substitute. This means that our sins have been removed from us, placed on Christ, and that He has paid for them in full. Jesus, our righteousness. What that means is that the perfect act of obedience of Jesus Christ and all the perfect obedience to His Father was credited to our account as if we lived it. We have all our sins removed from us. We have perfect righteousness on our account. And now, here the great high priest has come. He sympathizes with us. He identifies with us. He understands the payment has been made. He's raised himself right at the right hand of the Father. He's gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And now he's saying, all oh, you come. Everyone come. The doors are open. There are no locks. Welcome to the feast. This is the message of Christmas. This is why He came, to provide a way for salvation. 
I think if we understand of Jesus, our great high priest, the way we ought to understand it, it ought to be an incredible motivation to pray, right? It's not as if that you got to work God into your favor by doing enough. Jesus has already perfectly removed your sin, clothed you in righteousness. You are a beloved child in the same way that Jesus is a beloved son of God. You share in the sonship of Christ because of your great high priest. You have the ear of an omnipotent, benevolent king. Do you pray like that? The incarnation should make us prayer warriors. Understanding, man, He has come for me. He has done everything. Prayer isn't about me seeing if I can climb up a ladder high enough to get into heaven. In Christ, He's already at the right hand. And I'm in Him. So what do your prayers reflect? Do they reflect the reality that you have the ear of a good, omnipotent King who can do all things according to the counsel of His will? Or are your prayers more like you're just talking to yourself? Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Again, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, confidence, think of that word, confidence, because of all that He's done, because of what He has accomplished, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way He has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You can go back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help or find grace to help in time of need. God's not a grumpy father who only wants to talk to you when you perform well. He's not a curmudgeon waiting for you to clean up your act and then he'll start listening to you. He's inviting the sinners, the filthy, the dirty, not to clean themselves up, but to come to him to be cleansed. And so if you're a prodigal, He invites you to come home. And if you're a backslider, He invites you to return. And He's not telling you fix yourself. He's saying, come to Me, I'll fix you. He's understanding. He's sympathetic. And He has opened the gates of paradise. Indeed, He's gone before the Father on our behalf. We can come to Christ and receive the fullness of the love of God. Here's our fifth point. Jesus, right now, is praying for you. You say, well, what's He doing right now? He has lived the life for me, died a death in my place, rose from the dead. He became a man so He could do all these things. He swung wide the gates of paradise. And well, well, what now? And friends, I want to tell you right now, this moment, this day, December 22nd, 2019, Jesus has finished the cross work 
to pay for your sins and enable salvation to be a free gift to all those who take it. However, he is not done being active for you. Because what the Bible says is that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he has not given up on you. He has begun praying for you. Interceding for you. You could turn back to Hebrews chapter 7 and see this. The former priests, verse 23, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. One would die, you'd need to get another one. One would die, you get another one. They couldn't hold the office because they all just keep dying. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since, listen to this, he always lives to make intercession for them. Always lives. Right now, he lives to make intercession for his precious children. He lives to make intercession for his beloved bride, the church. He, right now, church, is praying for us. <laughs> Could there be any more beautiful truth to know that right now we have not been left alone and we have not been abandoned, but he prays for us corporately. Indeed, I believe he's praying for you, Christian, individually as a sympathetic friend who knows your every need, knows your every weakness, knows you more than you know yourself. He is committed to you more than you're committed to you. He's committed to your growth and sanctification more than you're committed to your growth and sanctification. He's committed to getting you home to heaven and getting you to glory more than you even think about getting home to glory. He is rigorously devoted to you as your great high priest. And he always lives to pray, to intercede, to advocate on your behalf. Listen, church, Jesus lives. The incarnate Son of God has lived and died and lives again. The divine Son of God has forever added a human nature. He entered His creation. He made the perfect sacrifice for sin. He then conquered death. He rose from the dead in the resurrected body of a glorified man. And He ascended into the heavens and He sits at the right hand of the Father and He welcomes everyone to come and He also has set up a prayer ministry for us. And He will never cease to pray us home. He will see to it that every last one of His children make it safe. What a Savior. He holds the supernova. He directs the planets. He knows what the dust mites are doing as they float through those sunbeams. And He cares for you. And all of His universe is orchestrated to bring Him glory and to care for His precious children. And so we sing before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. He is ever living, ever pleading for us. He will not die. He holds his office because he is permanent and fixed in heaven for all eternity, and therefore we are secure. Rest. Rest in this Jesus, this cosmic and divine and yet human and understanding Jesus. 
Louis Burkhoff, reflecting on this amazing reality of Christ praying for us, says, it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That He is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not even present in our minds, and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that He prays for our protection against the dangers which we are not even conscious of, and against the enemies which threaten us, and we don't even notice them. He is praying that our faith may not cease, and that we may come out victoriously in the end. How many of you find it hard to get up early and spend time with the Lord in prayer? Jesus doesn't find it hard. He has never stopped praying for you. He is praying for you before you get up, He's praying for you while you pray. He's praying for you after you're done praying. And He's praying for all the things you've forgotten about. He's praying for all the things you didn't think about in your prayers. He's covering all the bases. He's made sure that every last detail of your life is perfectly accounted for. He's praying for you. And I like what Robert Murray McShane said about this. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room. Could you imagine that? Christ is in the other room, just pouring out his heart to the Father for us. He says, if I could hear that, I would not fear a million enemies. And then he says, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He is, right now. And I think if you want to capture the wonder, not the dead external formality of religion, if you want to capture the wonder I implore you to reflect on the living incarnate Christ right now in heaven, praying you home, caring for you as a shepherd, watching over you like a friend, sympathetic towards you, understanding you, understanding all your weakness, all your temptation, and caring and carrying those things with you. What a great high priest. And so we say with Paul in Romans 8.32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare His own Son. That's incarnation. That's His life. That's His death. That's His resurrection. He didn't didn't hold Him back. He, He didn't spare Him. He offered Him off for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Listen who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's alive. He's forever a man, forever understanding, forever our great high priest, ever interceding for us. A wonderful Savior. And if we want to make this season a time of real wonder, and if we want our lives to be that life that increases with wonder as we grow old, It will be a life that spends time meditating on that which is supremely wonderful, namely Jesus Christ. May our holiday season be filled with Jesus 
and not the dead formality that can creep into our lives, but with the living, resurrected, great high priest, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So Lord, because you are alive, because you are a man who has been weak, who has suffered, who has been tempted, and yet was without sin, because you died in payment for all our sin and rose from the dead, because you ascended to heaven, the right hand of the Father, on our behalf as our forerunner, we have complete, unhindered, all access to you. And Lord, we ask for forgiveness for the lack of worship in our hearts. We confess that we get busy and distracted so easily. And we ask that you would tear away veils and enable us to see that which matters most. That we would see with uh, the eyes of our hearts the greatness and the glory and the wonder of who you are. And in particular, your ministry for us as our great high priest. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand and sing with me? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for god the justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and 
of grace One with himself I cannot die My soul is purchased by his blood My life is in with Christ on high With Christ my Savior and my God With Christ my Savior and my God One with himself I cannot die My soul is purchased by his blood My life is in with Christ on high With Christ my Savior and my God With Christ my Savior and my God Angelo and Zaira and Angelo Orioli to come on up and Richie and Monique Warner come on up and uh, if you have your bulletins with you the inserts go ahead and take out the single page that says Grace Rancho affirmation of commitment and then I'm going to ask our current Grace Rancho church members to stand with us please Uh, we get the chance to formally recognize uh, these folks in the membership this morning It's always an exciting time, and it's an opportunity for not just them to affirm these commitments, but also for all of us to affirm the commitments that we've made to God and to one another. So I'm going to read them out loud, and then I invite you to follow along. Since we have been brought by divine grace to repent of our sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, We now remember the commitments we've made toward one another. We affirm our allegiance to Jesus Christ to live in this world as his disciples. And having counted the cost, we consider serving Jesus Christ a greater privilege than anything the world has to offer. We affirm our desire to weave our lives together in brotherly love as we are members of one another, exercising tender care for each other, faithfully admonishing and encouraging one another as occasion may require. We affirm we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and one another. We affirm our commitment to making disciples, starting with whomever God has placed within our care, raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We will seek the salvation of our family and friends. We affirm our commitment to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, and with tenderness and sympathy, bear the burdens and sorrows of those who weep. We affirm our commitment by God's help to live holy lives in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, remembering that we have been buried with Christ and raised to new life, that sin no longer has dominion over us, and that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in holiness. We affirm our commitment to submit ourselves to this church family, including the specific elders who are uniquely responsible for keeping watch over our souls. We affirm our responsibility for the continuing work of the ministry in this church, upholding the value of corporate worship, the observance of the ordinances, church discipline, and sound doctrine. We affirm our desire to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor among us, and the spread of the gospel to the nations as the Lord provides opportunity. 
And we affirm that if we move from here, we will communicate our intentions to our leaders, seeking their input and prayers, eager to unite with a like-minded church and continue serving as God allows. So for the Orioles and the Warners, you confirm and affirm these commitments in front of your church family. All right. And to our church family, do you affirm these commitments to one another and to the Orioles and the Warners? You do. Praise God. Well, 1 Corinthians 12.21 says that no part of the body of Christ can say to one another, I don't need you. And the implicit understanding in there is that means that each part of the body needs one another. And that's a beautiful reality that we affirm. That means that the work that God is doing in each one of us, he's doing in the context of our local church. So I'm going to pray for these families and for us. And then afterwards, I want you to come up front and say to the Orioles and the Warners, I need you and you need me, right? And we rejoice in this beautiful reality, all right? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. What a great encouragement that we have received. Uh, Thank you that even now as we come to you in prayer, that Christ is praying for us. Uh, Thank you for the Orioli family. Thank you for the Warners. Thank you for bringing them to us. And thank you for the wonderful and beautiful reality that you are at work in them and at work in us. And we need each other. And so we ask for your help. We know that we can't do it on our own. We need your grace and the presence of your spirit to be the people that you have called us to be, to keep these commitments that we have affirmed, to live the lives, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And may we do it all for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.